Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and once more I've come over to Peter Hart's gaff uh, in the, uh, the Principality of East Finchley. Socialist home of socialist. And princes. And princes. And today, and Pete, Hatcher. <laughs> today we're, we're moving away from the boring podcasts. They're all done, aren't they? Yeah, we're back done, into done the, all the boring, boring podcasts with no action. Uh, and we're back with the 16th DLI. They have lots of action. They do. And on and off the battlefield. Today, we're going to be covering the attack on the Gothic Line. Ooh, so let's, can you set the scene for me? Because you're a bit of an expert on this phase of the Italian campaign. Well, I shall read the notes. Oh, good man. Is that, is that the same thing? Yeah. All right, then. At long last, the Allied Great Leap Forward in May 1944 broke the stranglehold, stranglehold of the Gustav Line. But the lure of Rome was too strong and it tempted General Mark Clark, who was the commander of which army, Pete? Uh, US 5th Army. That's correct, or actually. Or was it the sixth? Uh, and no, it, fifth. He was tempted fifth, away from sixth, a concerted fifth, fifth, attempt. Sixth. Fifth. This is why you should go off and concentrate on your comedy career. Yeah. I use the, the word career loosely. A lot of things about you are loose. Now, Mark Clark moved away from a concerted attempt to cut off the retreat of the German 10th Army from the Monte Cassino area. Yeah, well, well, so he he makes a dash for Rome, doesn't he? And Kesselring, that German commander, he manages to withdraw most of his troops in the Monte Cassino area before they were encircled. What's happening on the west? That's the east coast. Well, it's not that much, but it's easy. What's happening on the west coast? The other side. Well, the Allies had fought their way up to Florence. I'm just working it out. We've- but east, on the west. east coast, the Germans had occupied strong positions in the Apennine Mountains. I think I sensed there may have been a mistake in yeah, the book Yeah, which there. then bent across to the Adriatic, providing a wall to further progress. Now, during the static period, the Germans had spent a considerable amount of time and effort in augmenting the natural defences to form the Gothic Line, uh, which would be a nightmare to break through. Yeah, it would. Uh, but that's where uh, Harold, General Harold Alexander, he, that's where he plans to break through. And what, what his plans basically are to concentrate the Eighth Army. Uh, what, what's in the Eighth Army, Gary? Uh, Fifth Corps, Tenth Corps, 
First Canadian Corps and the second Polish Corps. Now, they would be on the Adriatic coast and uh, they would launch Operation Olive uh, to smash through the Gothic line. Uh, now, where, where are the DLI, 16th DLI? Well, they'd been lucky to miss the Monte Cassino battles, but there'd be no escape for them this time. On the 3rd of July, 1944, the battalion was disembarked from the Sobieski at Naples. Yeah, they'd been, remember, you remember the last podcast, they'd been uh, in the Middle East, hadn't they? I mean, uh, refitting, reorganising and training, yeah. They were then moved to San Secondino, near Capua where they overhauled vehicles and weapons before beginning a series of platoon and company field firing exercises. On the 17th of July, they moved to a tented camp at, camp at my favourite village name ever. What is it, Gary? It's the village of Bastardo, near the divisional concentration area what around the sea. What does mean in Well, I'm, I'm learning Spanish at the moment. You are and, learning uh, Spanish. You get things like telefono, meaning telephone. So Bastardo must mean bastard. Brilliant name for a village. I love it. Now, uh, here they've got loads more training. Training, 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 training. Building up fitness, tactical exercise, route marches, of course. Practicing river crossings. There's a lot of rivers going to be in front of them on this uh, in, in the next phase. Uh, uh, also, what else? What, 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 what hadn't they done a lot of? Well, there was some specialist training in street fighting, reflecting the changing nature of the terrain they were to face in the months ahead. Naturally, and what else did the British Army do? Naturally, there was a great emphasis on playing sport, especially football, da, 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 with a tough competition to become the champion soccer company. Soccer? Yeah, soccer. That's aimed at the American audience. Yeah, well, we're uh, got to keep them on side. Uh, now, reinforcements were still feeding into the battalion, and a lot of them were coming from the former anti-aircraft units, which were being broken up. Why were they being broken up, Carrie? Uh, because you didn't need them to the same extent, because presumably air superiority was with the Allies. Yeah, that's right. And this is what Major Arthur Vizard of Headquarters Company said. A lot of ACAC gunners were being stood down because they didn't need them to the same extent. Air superiority, I've just said that, <laughs> air superiority you. <laughs> having been gained. A great many anti-aircraft gunners who joined various infantry visions, they weren't very pleased about being downgraded to infantry. Oh, yes, they felt that as part of the uh, ubiquitous artillery that they were superior. After all, artillery were the right of the line. They didn't feel very happy about coming to infantry, and we had to make them feel at home as best we could. We did this by pep talks and so forth. They couldn't understand what the Durhams were talking about for Wait, a long eh? time, <laughs> uh, and it was always that language problem. But little by little, they settled in. After all, it was a question of survival, so you learn very quickly then. So, uh, 10th of August, 46th Division, that's the parent body of 139 Brigade, which is the parent body of the 16th DLI, became part of 5th Corps. So who else is in 5th Corps? So it's 46, who else? The 4th and 56th British Divisions and the 4th Indian Division. And they're part of 8th Army, as, you, as we discussed earlier. Uh, they're going to take, uh, they're going to attack that Gothic Lion fortress. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's behind the line of the Fo Foglia River. Foglia. Uh, now, um, they're, 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 it's, an, it's an intimidating prospect, isn't it? Because it's, it's loads of ridges and rivers and, oh, God. Uh, but they get an encouraging visit, don't they, from the 8th Army commander, Major General... Uh, Oliver Lease, 
who briefs them. And, and it's an optimistic briefing. They're going to shatter the German defences uh, and, uh, and drive forward to what was the ultimate objective? Vienna. In Austria. Mm. Geography with Pete and Gary. Now, how were they to do it was not really detailed. A similar approach was taken by their divisional commander at another briefing before they began to move forward to Isola del Piano on the 22nd of August. And uh, this is what Major Arthur Vizard says about that. General Hawksworth, he assembled everybody and said, the 46th Division will bust the Gothic line. That was about the extent of his divisional orders. He wanted no daylight movement. All movement was to be at night, with lights restricted to the slit with the mauve bulbs. There weren't any roads to speak of. They were tracks, really, more than anything else. They were dusty, and it was early August. The moment you started a vehicle going, you got clouds of dust behind, which was visible for miles. It took us two days to move into a forming up area. The whole thing was done with the utmost secrecy in order to have surprise. We didn't want anyone to know we were preparing an attack on the right wing, the Adriatic wing, up towards the Gothic line. Now, the, the, what, what's the overall war situation, Gary? Uh, uh, you're, you're, you're good at the big themes. That's from your position in high, higher management. You don't deal with detail. What are the big themes of the state of the war at this time? Well, I think you're referring to the reasons why they were so confident. And that was the D-Day invasion of Europe had begun. Paris had fallen. Operation Dragoon had landed a further invading force on the French south coast, while the Russians were advancing remorselessly on the Eastern Front. So the overall war situation is positive. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, now, the, there's also another thing about 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 the Gothic line defences. Uh they were good, weren't they? They were well planned out, well laid out, but there was there was there's, there's something that the Germans didn't have. Well, men, they they were short of troops to man the defences. The uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> the hundred and twenty seventh Panzer Corps. Uh, L what's L? Uh, I don't uh, L fifty, I think. No, C's fifty. No, C's hundred fifty. Right, seventy seventh. Panzer Corps facing the 8th Army. Roman numerals with Pete and Gary. <laughs> was just three divisions strong. And they were short of tanks, artillery and air support in sharp comparison to the Allies. I, I think, uh, I just think, you know, thinking about, not we're not soldiers, are we? Oh, you were, sort of. Um, do you think... Uh, I was a shiny ass. Do you think uh, tanks, artillery and air support might be important in a Second World War battle? Yeah. But so is the fact that the defenders were determined and it would be wise not to underestimate them. Tough soldiers, yeah. Tough soldiers. Now, on the early morning of 25th of August, Operation uh, 1944, Operation Olive begins with the advance across the Metoro River and the approach to the Foglia River, OK? That's where the main defences lie behind. Will you put up a map? Uh, if I remember, the forty-six. I tell you what, you do it this time. You're you're good at this. You you put one up this time. Good man, good man. Well done, Gary. So everybody, if if there's not a map, it's entirely Gary's fault. The forty-sixth division was part of Lee's huge offensive, uh, with the fourth Indian division attacking on the left flank. That's the lefty hand side, and the first Canadian corps on the righty hand side. Righty hand side. So they're in the middle of those. Two. Uh, nearest to the Adriatic coast, so that's also on the right-hand side, but beyond the Canadians, was the second Polish corps. So this is a, a four-core attack. It's Biok, 
It's a Turkish brigade, big. The 139th Brigade was on the left of the 46th Division front, with to the right the Hampshire's of 128th Brigade. Yeah, at first it goes pretty well. The 5th uh, Sherwood Foresters, fine body of men. I did a lot of interviews with them as well. They cross the Matoro River and push on onto Monte Bianco and Monte del Morte, after which the 5th Leicesters, another fine body of lads, passed through them to take uh, Tomba. Uh, uh, it, the, the Durhams, they're not doing much at this time. No, it was only at uh, 1700, that's 5pm, Pete, on the 27th of August, did the Durhams move forward with one company moving to relieve the 5th Hampshire Regiment on Monte Grosso. Is that near Bastardo? Uh, Monte Grosso, Mount Big. On the 28th of August, the rest of the 16th DLI were launched forward into an attack on the Petriano village, about a mile short of the Apsa River. Accompanied by the tanks of the 51st, that's Leeds Rifles, Royal Tank Regiment. At first, it appeared a gentle return to action. And you're going to tell us what 2nd Lieutenant Douglas Tiffin of D Company says. Tiffin always reminds me of that... T and Tiffin, isn't it? T and Tiffin. And, of course, of the classic work of Kenneth Williams in uh, in Garrowing Up the Kyber. But uh, Douglas Tiffin, great bloke. I remember him well. We had tanks with us. It was rather like these pictures, which I always suspected were posed. Pictures of people marching behind tanks with their bayonets fixed. However, that is what, in fact, we did. We were behind the tanks and it looked a bit like a posed picture. There wasn't any resistance in Petriano itself, but there must have been the odd sniper here or there because as we were walking up behind these tanks, you could hear the odd whine and ricochet going off. We advanced cautiously into Petriano, taking the necessary steps, doing it all by the book, very carefully. It could have been heavily defended. As it turned out, it wasn't. That was a great relief, a certain amount of euphoria, and I think everybody was then a bit too relaxed. Mm. So for about half an hour, nothing really much happened, and the men took shelter in the buildings, but the Germans had them in their sights. So they were nearby then. And this is what uh, Second Lieutenant Douglas Tiffin goes on to say. A lot of us, including my company commander, Frank Duffy, were in this stone house, very thick walls, cellars underneath. We weren't in the cellars, we were just relaxing. I was leaning against the wall. Frank Duffy, he was on my left. Further to his left, there was a door which led into a bedroom. We were tired and we had our packs on, which we just rested up against the wall. In came this chap who remarked to Frank Duffy and myself that there was a a bed there. Why don't you go and rest on that? We both said, oh, can't be bothered. We'll be all right where we are. Three minutes later, the room, the bed and everything else disappeared in a cloud of smoke. A direct hit by a shell. We were no more than a few yards from it. Frank Duffy simply got up, obviously dazed, shocked, muttered something and walked out the door. He said, I'll have to go back. He'd obviously taken more of the blast. I'd only taken a comparatively small amount. What struck me so forcibly was that if we'd laid on this bed, we could have been dead. They would have been dead, I think. Uh, um, Poor old Frank Duffy. Yeah, Frank Duffy was clearly shell-shot, and he had to be helped back to safety. Major Ronnie Sherlow took over in command of D Company. A veritable barrage of shells fell all around the Durhams, Douglas Tiffin was faced with a call for assistance for some wounded men who were lying helplessly in the road, which was still being shelled. 
And this is once more Second Lieutenant Douglas Tiffin of D Company. Somebody would have to go and pick them up. One of the chaps in my platoon, a fellow called Tuck, who was a little bugger, a very bad disciplinarian, but quite an intrepid fellow in many ways. He said, all right, I'll go and pick them up. I'll get a jeep. I thought, well, I must do something about it. I'd better go with him. We got in this jeep, which he drove very badly. And I subsequently learned that he couldn't really drive. <laughs> he drove it along this village road, which was being quite heavily shelled, a rather hair-raising experience. And we picked these fellows up who'd been badly hit by shrapnel. Well, there's a, I think that's a great story about uh, just men... I mean, can you imagine it? If you were lying in the road on the, just outside our house uh, and the road was being shelled, that means going out to, to rescue you. And even if I got to you, I wouldn't be able to move you. That's true, but then you wouldn't bother coming. Yeah. <laughs> now, that night, the 16th DLI moved forward, crossing the Apsa River and climbing up the next ridge where they were able to dig in it was becoming apparent that the Germans had fallen back to the main defences of the Gothic line along the ridges behind the Foglia. Now, on 30th August, the battalion crosses the River Foglia. Uh, the Durhams, they're ordered to relieve the 5th Sherwood Foresters, uh, who were up on uh, Monte Vecchio. As they went forward, some of the men found themselves marooned in a German minefield. Wow. Now, for Bill Ver or William Ver, it was a nightmare. And this is Corporal William Ver of 12th Platoon B Company. We came to a minefield. It was marked just one strand of wire and these signs, skull and crossbones, with acton, meaning. It was obviously a minefield. <laughs> top, top. <laughs> the first section were wondering, what are we going to do now? The foresters were supposed to be sending a guide. They, they must have made their way through somewhere. He hadn't arrived, so the company commander said, push on. The first section ducked under the wire and gingerly walked through to the other side. The next section followed and they hadn't gone two yards when one of them stepped on a mine. There were shoe mines, just a wooden box with pegs in which, which, which held the, the top half from dropping onto the bottom half. The weight of a man would break the pegs and allow the top half to go down, ignite the charge and blow your foot off. They stepped on one of these and a lad lost his foot. One was killed, something flew up and hit him in the throat, and another lad was wounded. We called for the stretcher bearers. Two of them came. They ducked under the wire, and they stepped on a mine. So that was another lad. He had his foot off as well. We managed to get them back out, and the company commander then called the first section back. Well, if you'd seen chaps walking on eggs, eggs, you can, you, you can imagine. This corporal, he didn't know where to put his feet, but the other lads knew where to put their feet. They put them wherever he would put his. <laughs> they all came back and didn't set another mine off. Mines was one of the things I dreaded most. I'd rather have been killed than maimed. You couldn't see them till you stepped on one. There, there were many ingenious ways of setting them up. I dreaded S mines, that's just the letter S, uh, especially. They were a shrapnel mine. If you stood on that, it jumped about five foot in the air and exploded with about 350 ball bearings inside, which spread out. You'd really no chance. You stood on one of them and that was it. With a mine, if you stood on it, uh, you'd lost your foot or you lost your life. But, but there's options. But I think uh, you couldn't see a shoe mine because it's buried under a, a thin layer of soil. Uh, buried? Buried, yeah. Now, in all, one man was killed and five wounded by the mines. 
Snipers also took their toll, although a terrible retribution awaited them if they were caught. And once more, because you're working very hard, you're going to tell us what Lieutenant Richard Hewlett of 12 Platoon B Company says. We were rather badly exposed to snipers. We were on a low piece of ground where there was no cover and we were hit by snipers. There was a sniper. We caught him. He was up a tree. He didn't have any special camouflage. He was just up a fairly bare tree. Fairly visible, actually. A very young German. And we had to fill him full of bullets before he'd give up. I think he had probably 30 bullets in him before he died. He was a very militant Nazi. They were very incensed at the damage he'd done sniping the people. So they were annoyed with him, so they filled him full of bullet holes. Um, of course, when we say he may have been a militant Nazi, but of course what, they, what he means is he was just a brave and determined soldier. He, but he may have been a militant Nazi as well. On the 31st of August, the uh, A Company were ordered to attack a feature known as the Triangle, just to the northwest of the village of Mondano, as part of a general advance by the 16th DLI and the 2nd 5th Leicestershire Regiment on the town and also on the uh, Monte Gridolfo Ridge that lay not far behind it. Now, Alan Hay, he was the company commander of A, 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 A Company, and he just did not like this at all. He thought the whole prospect was mad. Uh, and he describes his feelings here. Go on, Gary. There was a huge hill which dominated our line of advance. We couldn't see what was behind that. Obviously, you were trying to pick out where the main German defences were. They were highly organised. They'd had a lot of time to prepare the Gothic line. Their tot organisation had built concrete emplacements. They had tanks that were sunk into these emplacements so that you couldn't really pick them up. They were nicely camouflaged. They had fields of fire for their small arms and here we were in broad daylight marching up. We didn't seem to have a great deal of supporting gunfire at that stage and there were no signs of any tanks. Now, he's a worried company commander. He's worried. He's worried for his lads. He's worried for himself. And he decides to make his views known. So he goes to see Colonel Dennis Worrell and he gets his orders and he objects. And from his perspective, Alan Hay, he thinks Worrell's absolutely clueless. What does he say? I said... Well, what is the plan? Where are the tanks? What about the artillery fire? He said, oh, they'll be coming. I said, well, we'll wait till we get some support. Then he went away. We advanced a bit further and we took some prisoners. We were then waiting for support. This was just after midday and I got a message from the CO that we were to advance immediately. I said, well, what about the support? I can't see any support. He said, that will be coming. We waited a while. Nothing came. Then he ordered me. He said, the general said you must advance immediately. I thought it was absolutely stupid. Broad daylight. When we were looking at this target, the colonel said, our friends the Lesters are there. I said, colonel, they're Germans. Look. He said, no, they're our friends, the Lesters. This was his first mistake. I thought, dear me, we're in trouble here. The Lesters on our left had not taken their objective and they were still heavily engaged, plus one of our companies... The Hampshires on the right, they'd taken their objective. Our C Company was too far away to give us any support and I wasn't in charge of them. So we, we all had to do this. I was threatened. I assumed I'd get court-martialed if I didn't. I said, well, this is suicide. He said, the general said you must or you will be in trouble. And with that, we'll just take a short break for an advert. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The chain of command stretched down unerringly from Major General John Hawksworth via Brigadier Alan Block through to Colonel Dennis Worrell. Now it's all part. What, what? What? You see, I think I've no, I've no argument with Alan Hay about his assessment of the tactical situation at all. Uh, I wasn't there. I don't know. Uh, but what I would say is that um, that it's all part of a much bigger operation. The intent of the operation, the bigger operation, the big picture, is to capture, to gain control of the Gridolfo Ridge. Um, and Worrell, does Worrell have a choice? Does he Does he have independent uh, command, do you think? No, he's got to do what he could to achieve the given objective. Now, Alan Hay, he briefed his own company officers, perhaps unaware of the irony that he was now forming part of the self-same chain of command. So each level's passing down orders, and Hay blames the one above him. But it makes you wonder whether the ones below him... Blamed him. It's quite interesting. Anyway, uh, what does Hay say? We're entirely on our own at this stage. I gave Lieutenant Marshall some buildings just sort of, uh, just short of Mondano, and there were some old buildings on our right that I gave to Lieutenant Hood. I brought up the third platoon with my company headquarters. I discussed it with them and said, well, this is it. We've got to go. Well, they're, they're, there's nothing left to say or do. They've been given their orders. Uh, they've object- He's objected. It's, it's on. And they set off towards Mondano. Uh, I, I don't know what they were thinking. I can't. I can't imagine what they're thinking. But they, they soon begin to come under very heavy fire. And this is what Alan Hay says. We advanced out in this open space knowing that these Germans could see us and they just turned their machine guns on us. We hadn't got very far, 
They were going forward to these lower buildings and they were immediately under machine gun fire coming from the left. Tim Marshall got quite a few of his platoon across the road to the first buildings. Hood got to the buildings on the right. I was following up. When I saw Marshall's platoon in trouble, I took my third platoon to support them, but the casualties were alarming. The Gothic line had been prepared especially for this. They had their lines of fire, they had machine guns set, and it was just chaos. I got forward. I said, where's Mr. Marshall? They said, he's down here. By the time I got to him, he'd been killed. I said, get out to the right to the other buildings. I got quite a few of them out. We rested up, counted the cost, tended the casualties. We'd lost almost a platoon. I looked at the situation. Still no support, no sign of tanks. My wireless set had been knocked out by that stage and I was almost glad not to have a word with the colonel. We reassembled and I got Hood to go round to the right behind these buildings and we were going to attack them from the side. By that time, uh, we were only one good platoon, which was the one I'd taken over. Just then, two aircraft from the Desert Air Force came in quick succession and each dropped a bomb on the target we were going for. But nobody had warned us and we were almost on the target and so we had casualties. Yeah, um, this is William Hood's platoon that were just about to reach their target uh, and they were hit hard. This this is the friendly fire that you hear about, the bombing. And they suffer several casualties, including Hood himself, who was also killed. Um uh, the survivors take shelter, but it's soon ever, it's, it's just apparent. Their problem, the problems aren't over. There's, there's worse coming. And what does Alan Hay say? We were in the first buildings where the first bomb had hit. There were still Germans in there, wounded, that we hadn't time to look at. This bomb had really done quite a lot of damage. We were still under fire from these machine guns on our left. The right was clear because the Hampshires had got that. C Company, who were watching all this, had no orders. And when I saw Major Mitchell later, he said, we had orders to stay there and we were far too far away to give you, you any small arms fire support. We had nothing else. At that time, we had to count the cost. I had lost one platoon officer. I didn't know I'd lost the other one. I got the chaps in some sort of defensive position, getting behind these brick walls in the ruins just to protect ourselves from this machine gun fire. There was certainly more than one heavy machine gun, but they had us in their sights. We were near enough to the Germans for them to be shouting at us to give up surrender. Morale amongst the men was very low at that time. We had chaps who'd been wounded and couldn't be attended to. The stretcher bearers were doing what they could. The sergeant major was extremely good. He was rallying them, taking command. I said to him, I must go round to the right where I sent Hood's platoon to see how they're doing. I found Hood had been killed, and I'm quite sure a lot of the casualties were caused by this bomb. Uh, yeah, can you imagine sitting opposite the guy who was actually there and did this and interviewing him, and you realise how, well, lucky I was in my choice of career, if you see what I mean. Now, in all, Alan Hay reckoned they'd got forward about a mile and a half. Uh, they made some progress, haven't they? But uh, his company is uh, usually in a tech, uh, severely handled. We're, we're not in no levity here. Um, now, how did... Alan Hay react. Well, for the rest of his life, Hay was bitter about the lack of support that he'd received. And, and this is what he said. We were on the objective. This was the main attack. We weren't there alone. Generals must have seen what we were doing. You think you're alone, but all sorts of people are there watching the battle as it proceeds. This astonished me that we were allowed to go on without support. 
not even our own carriers, not our own mortars. I said, well, we'll just wait. They're obviously waiting until night time to reinforce us. I went round the men and eventually the count of fit men was 27. About 90 went in. Wow, so there's 60-odd were killed or wounded so far. Um, they're, they're stuck in, it's, it's hardly splendid isolations. They're just out on the limb in, in this shattered building. And his men, uh, what are they vulnerable to? What, what do the Germans do? Well, I think you're making reference to uh, a, a possible German counterattack. Now, Hay, he came to a somewhat rash but understandable decision. And this is what Major Allen Hay of A Company says. We come to expect if you got into a place, the Germans were bound to counterattack. They know there are not many of us. They're going to counterattack. I said to the Sergeant Major, there's only one thing to do. Let's go for these machine guns. It's dark now. We know where they are. I led this little composite platoon of 27. We were working undercover to get the machine gun. I had a grenade in my hand when suddenly out of nowhere I saw the tracer fire coming from another position. I was so surprised and I was hit on the sample. Germans always cover each other. My first thoughts were, have I pulled the pin out of the grenade? I think I was concussed, but I was still thinking. I said to my runner, Wood, are you all right? Yes. Well, I've been hit. I don't think I can carry on. I was trying to get my first field dressing out, and I couldn't get the plastic wrapping off it. Obviously, I couldn't see very well. I didn't know how bad my wound was, but I was still thinking... I saw the two Germans get up from the machine gun. It was only about 20 to 30 yards away. They were coming towards us. I said to Wood, are the others near? He said, I can't see anybody. Well, get up and run. I'll follow you. He got up and ran, and I ran. I don't know much about it after that. I remember meeting up with the sergeant major somewhere down the line, and I said, were there many casualties? He said, no, nothing further. I think myself and my runner must have been well forward of the others. I said, We'll make the men safe. No, no reinforcements coming up? He said, no. The next thing I knew, I was in some dressing station. They said I was demanding to see the CO. Why would that be, do you think, Gary? I think you'd compliment him on his uh, support. I think a bit of a shouting match. Um, again, I mean, it, it's interesting that the rest of the men weren't alongside him and his runner and they'd you know, they're, well, difficult in the dark. Difficult in the dark. They, 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 they attack on the machine guns just fell apart. I mean, especially after he was wounded. Um, he was evacuated with his wounds. Um, he was also suffering, and this is interesting, he was diagnosed as suffering from battle exhaustion, and uh, and he had problems with his... He'd been hit on the temple. This isn't a terrible wound, but he had problems with his uh, physical balance. Uh, and uh, he was hospitalised, convalescence as usual, and he'd only rejoined the Durhams in December 1944, uh, which is it's only three, what, four months later. But Alan Hay would never forgive Colonel Dennis Royal, as was more than evident in the interview that you did in 1993. Yeah, from his perspective, it was the men he'd trained that, 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 that he knew, his friends, uh, uh, they'd been sacrificed as far as he was concerned because they hadn't had the proper support. Uh, he wanted artillery, he wanted tanks, mortars, brain cars, whatever he wanted, he just wanted something to help his man. Uh, uh, but we, we, we see another point, don't we? Yeah, military matters are not guided by humanitarian concerns, unfortunately. The battle was intended to establish the 46th Division up on the Gridolfo Ridge, 
that was not negotiable as far as the high command were concerned. And in the end, that aim was largely achieved as both 139th Brigade and 128th Brigade on its right had managed to carve out positions on the Gridolfone Ridge. So for them, this attack was a success. Painful for the Durhams, or for, for A Company, but it was a success. Now, uh, what what is the overall mood amongst high command at this stage? Well, they were optimistic that a few more solid blows would crack the Gothic line wide open. I immediately thought then of Haig. Uh, yeah. At, at first eight, you know. He was worried about he the Germans. He was worried about one more the blow. Yeah. And then, of course, he did the same in Somme and uh, Third Eves. Uh, Sorry, I don't. I don't. You've not heard the. <laughs> um, it, I don't know. Uh, we're, we're thinking about this in the large. I think we think that these are huge military operations, aren't they? Um, yeah, and there's always winners and losers, even on the winning side. Yeah, and, and you can't military resources like tanks and artillery. They can't be spread out evenly. They're, they've got to be concentrated to maximise their impact to achieve the most that can be done. And and what does that mean? Well, it means that in some places there'd be a lack of the support that was required, and units would suffer. Sacrifices had to be made. Their losses had been considered a price worth paying to take the ridge. Because they thought that was the blow that might crack open the the whole line, as we said. So, well, there you go. Um, Now, furthermore, though it's difficult to swallow, tactical mistakes were inevitable in the stress and confusion of battle. And perhaps Worrell had made some mistakes. Perhaps he could have done more. And certainly, Alan Hay thought so. And I think that's where we leave it. Oh, we're not big into... Actual slamming people for things. Well, we Whether it be Alan Hay or... You said that a number of times. We weren't there. We weren't there. That's right. Now, that night, C Company attacked the Triangle and they managed to overrun it before their German counterattack then <laughs> flung them back out. And they, they also suffered casualties. It's a hard day for the Durham. It's a painful reverse. Um, uh, next day, 1st of September, another attempt to take the Triangle, eh? Who's it? Whose turn is it this time? Well, this time it's D Company with C Company in support. And Douglas Tiffin was sent forward on a recce patrol. So, this this is, uh, well, I think it's an amazing bit of uh, oral history. Not by me, it's him that does it, remember. Uh, We were ordered to go up and reconnoitre a white house and, if possible, occupy it. We picked our way through vineyards and I was leading the platoon. About 10, 20, 30 yards in front of me, I saw a movement. I suppose instinctively. I just rushed forward because I was so close. I had a Tommy gun, which was very effe- which was a very effective weapon at this sort of thing, and I opened fire. To, to my surprise, after some shouting and screaming, one or two people had been hit. Getting in amongst this, there was a platoon of Germans, about 15, 16, came out with their hands up. Why hadn't they fired at us? Probably they hadn't seen us because we were coming through the vineyards, which were fairly full of leaves. Perhaps we were just out of their line of fire. I'm quite sure that if, if we hadn't fired and dashed forward, they would have been able to enfilade us. They got such a shock to find people charging around and spraying them with bullets that they put their hands up and came out. It sounds like something out of the boy's own paper, but they did literally say, Da, don't shoot, Tommy. And out they came. This warrant officer came up to me, German warrant officer, and said, Don't shoot, 
because they were still obviously apprehensive that we weren't going to ask that we weren't going to ask any questions and we were going to keep on firing. <laughs> he pulled his wallet out and showed me his wife, Frau, and uh, his Frau and, and children. Don't shoot! Don't shoot! He had a lovely luger, so I took it and stuffed it in my belt. And I thought, well, that's a good souvenir. There were five or six Germans herring back. We had our Bren gun, and I suppose they were a couple of hundred yards off. We were firing at them, and we didn't hit them. I suppose in all the best books you would have done. It was quite a clear target. That's the beauty of oral history, in a sense, that they just tell you what actually happened. Uh, it, it, you, the, the chance, you know, they don't exaggerate. Oh, we shot them all. Mm. Well, he didn't. Now, Tiffin felt that they had surprised the Germans and at first felt that there might be a chance to exploit the position. He asked for reinforcements, but none were forthcoming. Instead, the Germans began to increase their pressure on the isolated platoon. In the end, Tiffin was told that his position was untenable. And you're going to go on as Second Lieutenant Douglas Tiffin. Somebody came up to me and said, you've got to pull back. I said, OK. I went up to the forward section to bring them back, moving to get myself at the head of, of the platoon. I thought I was undercover. I was fairly careful, I thought, <laughs> but they must have had a line of fire. The next thing I knew, I was hit. I felt as if a sledgehammer had hit my left thigh with excruciating force. I shot down the bank, down amongst the vineyards. I didn't lose consciousness. What I do remember is finding my left leg across my body. The bone was completely shattered, so the muscles contracted and the leg comes across. The first thing I did was wiggle my toes because I thought the leg was off. However, I could wiggle my toes. I had enough medical knowledge to know that if you can't wiggle your toes, the legs are goner. But everything was working, incredibly, as the bone was completely and absolutely shattered. It must have hurt, but I can't say I was writhing in agony. Two or three blokes... Two or three of the blokes came round. I told the sergeant to take the platoon back as we'd been told to. He, he, we pulled the leg straight. It wasn't bleeding all that much. It missed the femoral artery or else it would have been dead in two or three minutes. I suppose that's only a millimetre either way. In hindsight, I suppose I'm the luckiest man alive. We stuffed it with a couple of field dressings, put two entrenching tools on and bound it up. That was that. I was conscious, but then I did feel a sort of blackness coming over me. Obviously, it was loss of blood and shock. I thought, you're going to die. You're dying. You laugh now, but I thought, no, I mustn't. I mustn't. The blackness came over, and then it went away again. This was about 11 o'clock in the morning. I was too badly moved, wounded to move. I had some water. Two or three people left water bottles. The platoon went back. Two blokes said, we'll stay with you. One of them was this fellow Tuck, the other was Askill. There we were, stuck in this vineyard. I thought, somebody will be along shortly. Time went on, and we just lay there for three or four hours. The Germans were shelling and mortaring the road, which was just at the bottom. I saw two of our tanks. They passed right in front of us. Tuck was trying to attract their attention, but it was hopeless. They soon came back again because there was a lot of shelling on the road. A lot of shells were falling in the vineyard. You, couldn't, you could hear the fragments whistling through. Tuck said, I'm going to go back and get somebody up to get you out, sir. Off went Tuck. He didn't come back. Tuck subsequently told me that he couldn't find anybody who would go forward. It was considered too dangerous. He did his best, I'm sure. Tuck's the bloke who helped him rescue those men in the jeep. Remember the one who couldn't drive? 
Askell and Tiffin were completely stranded and faced a terrifying experience. Sounds are magnified in the relative still of the night and Tiffin could hear the Germans all around him. You could hear Jerry voices. They'd put patrols out, nosing their way forward. They passed within a few yards of us. You could hear them whispering. We were tucked into a vine. We tried to cover ourselves with leaves. It was pitch dark by this time. Midnight. What I really feared was that if they saw us, they'd shoot first and ask questions afterwards. Anyhow, they never saw us. That was quite a terrifying experience. After midnight, the patrols stopped. At one or two o'clock in the morning, they started shelling again, very heavily along the road. But they were falling in this vineyard. The vineyard came down to the road, and where it met, there was a ditch. The shelling was really bad, and it was a matter of luck whether you were hit or not, because you could feel the shell fragments whining through the vineyard. I said to Askell, we'll have to get to that ditch, or we're going to be hit. It was 20 yards away, and I dragged myself down there with his help. It was excruciatingly painful. People say, that is impossible. It isn't impossible if it's a matter of life or death. By this time, it was three or four o'clock in the morning, so I'd been out there getting on 16 hours without any medical attention. But I was still conscious. It was obviously getting near dawn, so Askell said, I'm going back. I'm going to bring, I'm bring somebody up if I have to bloody well drag them up. So off he goes. That was perhaps the worst part of it. There I was on my own. Now, if he didn't come back, what the hell was I going to do? Even if I was found by the Germans and I didn't get shot and they treated me decently, which I'm sure they would have done, one fear I had fixed in my mind was that I didn't think they had medical treatment as good as ours and they would probably amputate my leg. I lay there with all these thoughts for maybe an hour and a half and I was beginning to get annoyed. (laughs) Humans. Suddenly I heard voices and there was Asker with two stretcher bearers from the Leicesters. They said... Come on, get on. These buggers practically dragged us down here at rifle point. So Tux and Bert Askell dragged them down. Um, What do you think of that as a piece of history, as as an experience? Uh, It's fantastic. And and listening to it was quite moving. And and imagine listening to the actual bloke. Um, You know, Mm. wow. Now, Tiffin had suffered a, a, a serious wound, followed by 18 hours without medical treatment, and he was in a terrible state. Yeah. He was evacuated by hospital ship to the UK, and he would spend most of the rest of the war in hospital. Now, back on the Mondano battlefield, the 16th DLI as a whole were relieved. Uh, they they, they realised that the Germans had pulled back, and on 2nd uh, uh, of September, the 2nd, 5th, Leicester's push into Mondana from the west, breaking the German stranglehold on the town. Uh, Always pragmatic, the Germans. They pull back once a a position's untenable. They're pragmatic. Uh, The advance continues, and we're not going to go into this. Uh, Sarah Ridge, uh, first Sarah Ridge, uh, and then uh, uh, 139 Brigade's doing well, but then the rest of 46 Division start to push forward. 128 and 138 Brigade's take Mondano, and they they get a bridge across the next river. What's that river? The Conquer River at, uh, is that San Clemente? I think, yeah. On the night of the 3rd, 4th September, the 139th Brigade was relieved and the 16th DLI moved back to Suladecio. What would you say was a, a polite word for the state they were in? Uh, knackered, I think. Not going for buggered? No, knackered. Yeah. We can't say buggered, it gets deleted. Oh, yeah. Now, they'd been almost dropping with exhaustion. Now, at last... 
they could sleep. Now, there was a, a considerable reorganisation with the arrival of more new replacement drafts. And as senior NCOs and officers were juggled around to replace casualties. Now, Les Thornton, as company site major of the support company, found that he was part of that process. Now, I find this very, this is another thing of a man doing his duty. I want you to all listen how he reacts to what happens. So Les Thornton says this. I picked up the field telephone and it said, Sergeant Major Thornton. I said, aye. <laughs> I'm afraid we've got news for you. Sergeant Major Mattin has been killed and you've got to go immediately to take over as C Company Sergeant Major. Urgently. I said, well, what about the company here? He means the support company. Forget about that. We will sort that out. Off you go. A jeep was sent and I got my kit together and off I went to report to C Company. I was not very pleased, actually. I knew I was going to be more liable to be killed than I was before. I mean, I was more liable to be, ki- to, to, to be killed by small arms fire or mortar fire. I wasn't very pleased. But of course, there was a job to do and it had to be done. What do you think of that? Well, that's another example, and there's been a few, of a man recognising and accepting what his duty was. He didn't want to do it, but he did it. And I think uh, uh, it, it's just what a what a story of footsloggers uh, in action it is. And uh, I, I, I think uh, I know there's the odd moment of levity, but so when you hear some of these quotes, you just think, "Bloody hell! What a what a terrible thing it was." And those men were so brave, even when they didn't want to be, they were brave. Mm. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com.pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?